Do you know the author? No, I don't, and I don't know the title either. But it's a blue book, and it kind of gives the whole story, you know. Have you a real love of books and learning? Welcome to episode 23 of Adventures in Library Instruction. It is still just barely February 2011, and uh, we're let's go. Let's introduce ourselves and uh, start the show. Um, I'm Jason, and I'm the communication librarian at Georgia State University in Atlanta. Hi, my name is Anna Vanskoik. I am a part-time reference librarian at a county library system in the great state of New Jersey, and I blog at firstconclusions.com. And hi, I'm Rachel Borchard. I'm the science librarian at American University, and I don't blog, but I tweet at Butternut Squash. And our special guest this evening, Iris Jastrom. Hey, Iris. Hi, I'm Iris. I'm the reference and instruction librarian for languages and literature at Carleton College. And I blog at PegasusLibrarian.com. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us tonight. Um, I just want to start off by saying that if you are an instruction librarian and you don't read Iris's blog, you really should be because, <laughs> Iris, I think you are one of the most thoughtful bloggers in the area of library instruction. And I just uh, we've been friends for a couple of years, but I, I don't know if I've ever told you what a big fan of your blog I am, and I know a lot of people uh, feel the same way. I just always get great ideas for, for teaching and how to approach, you know, undergrad classes and, and all kinds of stuff. So I'm really glad that you joined us uh, this month, and uh, thanks for being here. Wow, that made me feel really good. <laughs> yeah, well, good. That's how we want to start off the show. So... Uh, before we uh, before we start talking about some of the stuff that we, we picked out like a couple of our favorite posts from your blog uh, over the last few months or so before we start talking about that I uh, kind of want to talk about a couple of things that uh, have been going on with uh, some of us lately um, so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about this trip that I just uh, came back from I just got back from a long weekend in Montreal and I was invited up for this conference uh, called Web 2.U uh, which was put on by McGill University's uh, Library Science School but it was entirely put on this whole conference was entirely put on by students and it's a one-day uh, conference and it's entirely run by grad students and they come up with the um, uh, the funding for it, I think they have a little bit of support from the institution. Uh, you know, they give them a, a really nice uh, facility to put it on and everything. But the students really run this whole thing and they fly up um, a speaker, you know, guest speaker every month and they have local people and people from the, the library school and, and so on speak. But I was just really blown away by this, um, this group of students and how um, engaged they were and how interested they were and um, just uh, I just really wanted to 
say thank you to uh, to the organizers again for inviting me up. And um, it's my first keynote ever, which was really exciting. But uh, and I I blogged about it. I put it on my my blog and I put my slides up and everything from my speech. But um, uh, more to the point, I just wanted to say how how impressed I was with this event that it was entirely put on by grad students. I I think it may be the only event like it out there that's that's put on by library school students. At least it's the only one that I have ever heard of. So, Jason, how many years has it been running? I've never I heard th- of it. I think it's about three years. It's really small. It was about 70 or 80 people. Um, Amy Buckland and Jan Dawson um, put on the first one, I believe, in, I, I want to say 2008. I'm sure they'll, they'll correct me uh, if I'm wrong about that. But <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, I remember it's been them talking running, about that. Yeah, it's been running for like uh, just three or four years now. And um, so every year, like they have a, you know, a second year student who uh, kind of trains a first year student to, to co-organize it and then the first year student next year. So basically the person, um, the idea is the, uh, somebody starts working on it in their first year and runs it, co-runs it for two years. So there's like some continuity between um, uh, co-chairs, I guess. Um, so anyway, this was just really cool, and I got to, to fly up to Montreal, which I've never been to, and, and uh, meet uh, some really cool people. I met a couple of uh, professors in the library school program, and they had a, a happy hour afterwards, which was great. So, I, you know, I got to feel like a kind of a, a minor celebrity for about a day, which was really cool. <laughs> cool. Sounds fun. That sounds really cool. So it was great, yeah. So that was the, you know, that's kind of what's... That, that was my big news anyway, but I had a great time, and, and thank you again, McGill Fultz, for, for hosting me. So. Well, I wanted to talk about my ongoing development in um, my, my grand quest to bring instruction to the science departments at American. I know. I, I feel like I should just start a blog already and talk about this. You really should. I mean, you should. It, some documentation. And that would be, like, searchable, you know? I mean, I love yeah. hearing that. It's not the same kind of... And I would read it. <laughs> All right, you people. Well, maybe right. this is the last update then, but um, you're getting one anyway. So I uh, now have plans to meet with the heads of three of the seven departments that I work with. And um, they're all pretty much on board, and they're really excited about it. And I've started teaching in biology for the very first time, as far as I know, maybe ever at American. It may have happened before, but first time since I got there. Um, so, and I have plans for the other departments. <laughs> very sneaky plans. Um, so I'm really excited, and um, you know, I'm hoping that this will kind of move us forward. And I feel like our university has kind of been stuck with a bit of programmatic, but mostly one-shots for a long time. Um, so I'm hoping this is kind of the jumpstart we need to move forward with it on a university level. So, Rachel, how are you up? able to say what some of these sneaky plans are? Or are they, <laughs> are they too sneaky? You have to kill me. They're not really that sneaky. I'm a kid. But, um, like, the computer science department um, has not typically been very involved with library instruction. And I will confess that I'm not even really sure if they what level of support they need. Um, but they used to be tied to physics. So I have a meeting with physics and I'm going to ask them uh, with how I should proceed from there. And if there are you know, people that know the library better and uh, would be good partners to work with, that sort of thing. Um, the chemistry yeah, department. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh. Uh, I know that on our campus, the 
computer science department came to our liaison to computer science and said um, that they see the library doing all sorts of cool stuff with other departments and they aren't quite sure themselves what it is that the library could do for their department given their curriculum. And so everybody's sort of scratching their heads and going, yeah, that is a, a thing to think about. So I was hoping that you would have some insight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I it's seeming as though, because I think physics and computer science are not entirely unrelated in that they tend to work with very kind of concrete problem sets and computer programs and, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, more than abstract concepts, which is more where we tend to fit in, I think, when you're writing research papers and really critically thinking about stuff instead of mm -hmm. just doing stuff. Um, but I think, I know for physics, probably what we'll end up doing is working with their seniors as they finish their final project. Because um, that's when you really have to start looking at the, the literature on your topic um, and you're doing your own research. So um, I'm thinking probably something similar with computer science and maybe well, set up some support. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not their liaison, but um, if I've heard them talking about how a lot of their work and research revolves around preprints as well that are available free. And that seems... Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I wonder it, if computer science is the same. Um, no, physics is its own unique little creature in that, because um, they have arxiv.org, it's archive. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's entirely physics run, which is very strange. And everyone keeps waiting for it to expand to other departments. And uh, so far, that has yet to happen. But um, yeah, this I don't even feel like you guys should be speaking Japanese right now. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> oops, sorry. <laughs> no, it definitely I'm... does change things for that department because they're so yeah. used to just going on the internet. And that's actually a good thing for mm -hmm. the physics department. So. Well, and I know yeah. that our computer computer scientists talk about right. how some Rachel, of the best I know literature. You might have said this before, but have there been other um, programs that you've looked at, other universities where you see that they have kind of integrated into information literacy into the science uh, curriculum? I I haven't really looked at um, done an official analysis of what other universities are doing, but I've definitely talked to a lot of science librarians about their own individual instruction efforts. Um, just because I happen to be involved in STS, um, Science and Technology section of ACRL. And uh, what it, it seems to be is a lot of it's just culture and what's come before and, you know, what the provost is like, what the department has historically been like with the library, um, way more than I can take X program and apply it to AU and have it be successful. So, um, yeah. I'm, you know, I have ideas of what I think could be appropriate at various levels, but um, a lot of it's just going to come down to what my faculty are comfortable with and what they really want me to do. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so that's uh, what I've been up to at American. I'm I'm really excited. Um, I feel like so few times do you come into university and have the opportunity, you know, have that kind of nice mix of people who are willing to listen and uh, room for me to do my thing to really make a difference in library instruction. Yeah, that's huge. That's that's sort of make or break for a good instruction job for me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Rachel, I, you know, you were talking about blogging this and everything. I was just thinking you really, I hope you're, you're documenting this in some way that you'll be able to write about it later in some form, because I mean, this what a great article that would make about kind of this whole top to bottom, you know, effort to, uh, for, to 
to establish this in a programmatic way, uh, that would just would really make a terrific article. I hope you're thinking about that too. I guess well, I, I should... know that <laughs> a lot of other science librarians that I know are grappling with some of the same questions, so they'd be really yeah. interested in what you have to say. Yeah. Well, that's why I keep mentioning it on our podcast <laughs> in hopes that, you know, people that are listening might be interested. Um, well, and even if you listen to it, I mean, what, Rachel, maybe a year ago? I mean, it was, I just remember you talking how huge it was, and it was daunting, how you've really mm -hmm. broken it down into these, it's just been, you know, not to sound cheesy or cliche, but it's really been this baby step um, effort, and it's starting to just, you're starting to see that big picture kind of come together. So it's, it's, um, I don't know, I think, I do think, I agree with Jason, I, I do think that people would want to know this some kind of strategy, whether it's been purposeful or not, um, kind of how you've gotten where you're going. Or if you Seriously, can make it sound sometimes, personal. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's just serendipity, though. I mean, Rachel happens to be in the right place at the right time, and bam, yeah. you know, she's making contacts with people. So it's really been both both planned and, and serendipitous. Yeah. Yep. It's been fun. <laughs> so I have I have a new teaching challenge that, that I'm not sure if any of us have done anything like this before, but I would love to uh, to talk about it just for another uh, minute or so, if I could. Um, so in about uh, four days, I think, from the time that we're recording this, I'm about, or maybe maybe more than that. Anyway, um, at the beginning of March, I am going to be starting a uh, an online class with uh, Simmons uh, Library School, continuing ed class, and it's going to be a month-long Zotero course. And it's going to be, I've I've taken asynchronous online classes. You've heard me talk about I did my whole library school degree that way, but I've never actually taught one before. So this is going to be kind of me dipping my toe into this for the first time. So I'm I'm slightly terrified because I'm not sure how it's going to go. Uh, a, I'm teaching librarians, so that'll be different for me. Um, B, I'm uh, I'm actually using my book manuscript as readings for the class and I'm kind of terrified for people to be seeing that in its very rough state at this point. Oh, but Jason, you're going to get great feedback on it. That's good for what, you. That's what I hope. That's what I hope that I'll get some good comments on that. Um, I thought, you know, if I, I'm writing this thing, I might as well put it out there and let people read it and, you know, cuz it's it's really about to go to print this spring, and it's going to be uh, hopefully on the shelves at ALA Annual. I will be talking about that if that's the case. But anyway, so um, I'm getting ready to start this class. It's going to be a month long, and um, I, I planned kind of poorly insofar as um, Computers and Libraries is going on right at the very end of this class, and I'm going to be traveling for about a week with uncertain internet access while I'm teaching an online class, so <laughs> that'll be exciting. Uh, good so, timing. Yeah, really good timing. So I've tried to come up with, every week I've tried to come up with some readings, which was not too hard. Uh, I, I tried to come up with something that was sort of practical and how-to, as well as something that was a little more theoretical, like one week I've got a reading about open source software, um, one week I've got... Um, uh, you know, something about teaching bibliographic software, thing, you know, things like that that were a little more, mm -hmm. uh, a little higher level and more theoretical. And every week I've tried to come up with some kind of a hands-on activity. Mm -hmm. And then the the final project, I'm having them 
write up sort of a proposal or an outline of a some kind of an application that they could use Zotero for in their own library. So that could be a hmm. class outline with you know with planned activities and planned handouts and things like that or it could be some kind of a collaborative research project or it could be something like that so that's that's sort of quote unquote the final and I'm not sure how many people I have registered I think maybe half a dozen or so I'll find out tomorrow so and it's all going to be discussion board based and um, I'm, we'll see how it goes. So I hope it goes well, and they'll they'll ask me to you know come back and do this again. But this is um, this is something that um, Beth Galloway and I were planning on doing some classes for Simmons because she's taught for them many times, and none of the ones that we proposed together had enough people register to for the class to make. And this time they were like, "Okay, you're on." I'm like, "Okay, I'm all by myself. Okay, let's see." How this goes. So, um, I don't know. Have any of you done any kind of online? A workshop like like this or have any suggestions or anything i, don't I haven't I've done it for... but if if anyone can make this work you can i oh, mean you have the you. most amazing <laughs> powers to win over your students i keep hoping that i'll someday get the kind of response from my classes that you get from yours and it hasn't happened yet <laughs> oh well i i don't know about that uh <laughs> Nobody has called me a, a god, for instance. Oh, well, they're, they're just impressed with Zotero, and I hope I'll, I'll be able to ride the back of that for the, this class of, you know, how, how awesome Zotero is. But, um, you know, it's something I'm genuinely excited about, as you as you all know, of course. So I, I think that's something that I can convey. I hope so, anyway. I just, you know, I'm, I'm really worried about I hope I chose good readings, because these are, you know, sort of my peers that I'm teaching, and I want to do a really good job, and I want to show Simmons that I can do a good job. So. So I'm excited well, but know, nervous about it. So. so one of the things that if I were a student, or let me back up, one of the things that got me more into these things myself was when I had to write up comparisons of the strengths and the weaknesses of the different um, tools. So EndNote is good at some things that Zotero is not. Zotero is good at some things that EndNote is not, and so on with um, RefWorks as well. And I know that the, that can sound a little bit stultifying, but if you can figure out a way to ask the question in a way that gets people excited about answering it, which I'll leave that up to you, um, it, it might be a, one really good way to, to sort of marry the theory aspect of bibliographic management software in general with the why is Zotero so cool aspect that comes later. I really like that idea. I'm going to, um, uh, I'll try and incorporate that. Maybe I'll do that like around week two because some people have not, I, I assume some people have not used Zotero before, um, mm -hmm. but maybe they have used other software. So maybe that's something I can bring up later on. I'll, I'll just, I'll sort of try and get a feel during the first week or so for what what other software people might have used before but that's a really good idea for discussion topic that thank you that's an excellent idea i i agree with iris that um i every time i teach endnote um it's occurring to me that more and more people are coming without really having committed necessarily to endnote but they want to know about it and so they figure coming to a workshop's you know as good a way as any but um i i think just a general overview of here are some of the different options and here's what they do is really helpful for people. Mm -hmm. um, well, and coming though, up with sort of use cases for them too, right? Because the one would be better for some kinds of uses and the other for other kinds of uses. 
Yeah, I think that's something we're definitely going to talk about. I really want to keep this grounded in terms of how, how are you guys going to use this in your library. And I'm assuming that they will have some, you know, some discussion and comment about what, what they think they want to use it for and things like that. So I can kind of tailor the, the discussion, the activities towards that as much as I can. Mm -hmm. um, to some extent, this is going to be kind of, you know, uh, a little bit of it will be sort of improv based on on what I feel like they need as as any class would this is just going to be a month long so mm -hmm. in a way hopefully that'll be easy because I'll have time and some leisure to to kind of think about and adjust on the fly so Jason as far as teaching oh, go ahead Rachel oh I was just gonna say um in terms of teaching online um and no it's actually the only thing I've ever taught online but I know for me it's much more helpful if they all have microphones um, it kind of helps the flow of discussion happen much more smoothly um, and you know if some people have microphones and some people don't um, especially if they're not fast typers it can really kind of halt conversations this uh, is actually going to be all asynchronous uh, carried on oh. our discussion board yeah as opposed oh, okay. to yeah but no I mean you're right Excellent. because I, I saw it done a lot of different ways when I was in library school and the, the classes where we had microphones there it really makes a big difference in kind of the, the balance between the the instructor and the um, and the students mm -hmm. uh, you know and kind of every how everybody felt like they could contribute or not um, but we're all gonna be on the same footing on this as far as just discussion board posts I'm thinking about maybe doing a, a, a couple of videos screencasts maybe just mm -hmm. myself talking so they can see me you know, on a webcam, um, but yeah, I'm just, I think that's I'm, really good. I'm going to kind of play mm -hmm. that by ear, but I, I, you know, to make it a little more personable. And I think Anna's good old, what do you hope to get out of this class? Definitely applies here. Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah. Cause you've got them for a month. I and know that's... I'm a little intimidated by that. I can't just like, you know, bluff for an hour and then they'll never. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so used to the half hour and the one hour that I don't know if I could go on for a month. <laughs> Yeah. I know. Yeah, it's so. so luxurious. Well, they told me to kind of plan for about 15 hours worth of work from the students over the course of the month. And I think I have that just about right. I mean, we'll we'll see. If they if they complain about too much reading and, you know, not enough hands-on, then I'll, I'll adjust. I, you know, like I said, I've got time to sort of adjust on the fly based on feedback. And hopefully this won't be the first, uh, won't be the last time I do it. So I'll be able to, you know assess based on how this goes and, and maybe do it again. We'll see. <laughs> I've heard from other teaching faculty that it, it's generally a three th a three course deal where you teach it the first time and then the second time you overcompensate for what you did the first time and then the third time you finally get it right. <laughs> balance. Yeah. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. So if you're feeling a little frustrated, don't worry. Apparently this happens with every new course for every faculty member on my campus. So, okay, you know, I, I figured this is going to be, I hope it's going to be a learning experience for them. I know it's going to be a learning experience for me. So, yeah. anyway, I'll report back on that maybe in the April episode when it's all done. I'll, I'll kind of report back on how that went. Yeah, please I, do. I learned from it and everything. So, anyway, I think I've, I've sort of gone on long enough about that. But um, <laughs> So, um, one of the things that uh, Iris had blogged about recently was uh, you'd written a, a post about um, Google Scholar um, late last year, and that one sort of jumped out at me as something that I thought would be cool to sort of use as a, a starting point for a discussion this evening. Um, and the, the post is called, Why Would Undergraduates Need Those Clunky Databases Anyway? 
as we were talking about this, we realized we've never really talked about Google Scholar on the show and kind of how we approach that in classes. So um, let's maybe just sort of use that as a jumping off point and go from there. Um, sure. So how, how have you approached Google Scholar in classes, Iris? <laughs> well, well let me tell you. Do you teach Google Scholar? <laughs> I, I use it all the time. Um, so the whole blog post started because of an article that I read by a, a researcher named Chen, and I will um, butcher the first name, so we'll just leave it at Chen. And the last um, page, the conclusion at the last page of that article said, the conclusion cannot be clearer. Libraries can seriously consider canceling a large number of subscription-based um, abstracts and indexes since their unique content is rap is ah I can't read <laughs> since their unique contents and value are rapidly evaporating and so then I thought you know so why do I teach with both Google Scholar and databases in my classroom and I started realizing that it's because I don't believe in what I consider the fallacy of the one search to rule them all mm -hmm. um, I think that a lot of times, I know I have tried to do this in the past, and I know I've seen um, other librarians do this, is try to teach a way to construct the best search possible. And so you f figure out what's the best search interface that I need to go to, and then what's the best search to put into that interface, bam, you're done. And that's just not the way research happens. I mean, research is much more like peeling an onion. You do a little bit here, you take what you learned, and you do a little bit there, you take what you learned, and you do it again over here, and you take what you learned, and so on. Um, and I also think that it's a fallacy to think that the, the citation out of Google Scholar or out of a database is its main unique value to a researcher. I think we get citations from all over the place, they're duplicated all the time, and the main value comes from the functionality of the interface you're using and the way that it helps you sort through and evaluate what you're finding there to help you decide where to go from there. So I kind of go back and forth between Google Scholar and databases with my students to, to really play that out for them, because this is how research actually happens. This is how their professors do research, right? Where you can kind of go into Google Scholar and do a really messy search, because it forgives that. It'll bring something back for nearly any search. And you can take the terms that you learn there and think, all right, so I didn't realize that I could look for um, articles on the, um, the World Fair that was held in Chicago, and I didn't realize that I could apply terms like American identity to search for other things happening around that same research topic. You can glean these things out of the abstracts that you're getting back. And then, you know, I could search for a really good article that I found in Google Scholar in America History and Life, the, the historical database uh -huh. for Americanists and find that exact same article that Google Scholar brought back for me and then see how the, the historians would describe that in their careful way in their database and search for other things that are along those lines using those terms and go back and forth and back and forth that way. And I think that if you think about it less as the one search to rule them all and more as using tools and each tool to get the most that you can out of it, for your own purposes. I think that that's actually a much more realistic research strategy. 
That is very ambitious to explain to a group of undergraduates <laughs> yeah. in a 30 or 60 minute class. Is my <laughs> and I agree, with, of course, with everything that you just said. That can be a hard thing to convey to a group of students who have never really done research before. And I think that one of the reasons we do try to show them the one perfect search is we want to show them everything going right so they can see how it's supposed to work. We don't want to overwhelm them with too much information and too many options. At least that's part of what I think when I'm oh, talking absolutely. class. But, okay, so, but that only goes so far, right? Because you have to simplify to an extent so that they can see what it is that so that they can draw boundaries around this task that they're set with, right? There are a million different ways that you could obfuscate everything because there's an exception to every rule and so on and so on. But if you make it look too perfect, then when they fail, then they think it's their fault rather than realizing that it's because research is hard. Yes. You're blowing my mind, Iris. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how would this look with a group of English 100 students? Um, well, I would probably go in and ask them how it is that they find articles in general. Invariably, somebody will admit to using Google, and I'll say, excellent, and they'll all look at me like, what in the world? <laughs> You're blowing my mind. And so then we open up Google Scholar, and we look for something on their topic, and we can type in whatever we want, and something will come back. So this is a fail-safe for me as a teacher, because you hate it when you do that on-the-fly search and nothing happens. Oh, yeah. In Google mm -hmm. Scholar, something will happen. Mm -hmm. And so then you can open up anything that looks remotely relevant and talk about how to use this to find anything else that will be even more relevant. So we, we go through this process together as a group of carefully reading an abstract, which I guarantee you none of these students have ever done before. They're so used to reading for comprehension because that's mm -hmm. all that's have ever been required of them. And by the way, that's hard. Um, <laughs> And then I, I force them to do this other really uncomfortable thing, which is to slow way down and write down every term that could possibly lead them on to another scholar, another area of research, another search term that we hadn't thought of before. And we make all these notes all over the place about where we can go from here. And then I say, well, let's try that in the database for American history. And we go and open up America History and Life. and start taking the terms that we have and clustering them together so that the ones that are sort of conceptually syn synonymous but not actually synonymous would all go together um, and then or those terms together each of the conceptual chunks get ored together and then the the concepts get layered together with ands I mean you've done all those sorts of things but we build that that other search together and see what happens and that's that's a a jumping off the cliff point for me um, <laughs> because occasionally nothing does happen and then we have to mm -hmm. talk about how to go from there um, but ideally and nearly always because usually we've pulled enough terms out of the original abstract that something will come back we can look at the kinds of terms that they find now in the subject headings in America history and life or in the abstracts and whether or not they're different from the abstracts we saw before and then I can show from there all the great disciplinary tools that America History and Life has that helps you evaluate what you're finding. So for instance, 
what else has this author published? That's a click away. Um, uh, what else has been published on this topic? What else has been published during this, uh, about this time period? That sort of thing is much harder to do in Google Scholar. So, you know, going back and forth like that isn't all that difficult, and it doesn't take a whole lot more time. The thing that takes a lot of time is that instrumental reading part where we take the abstract and milk it for everything it's worth. So, Iris, here's my question. <laughs> uh, because I... You know, I, I actually do a fairly similar process that we, I usually start with the topic and then brainstorm all of it. And then I, I usually, I, I always, almost always skip Google Scholar in this mm -hmm. process. Um, because what I'm worried about is, uh, usually their assignment is something along the order of find two scholarly articles, mm -hmm. right? On a fairly broad topic, usually. And um, that takes about five seconds in Google Scholar. And that satisfies their assignment, right? And I am usually teaching to the assignment because that's how they're going to listen. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So how do I, I've, it's, I, I'm are not you, explaining this well. Are you, are you <laughs> worried, are, Rachel? The barrier are you is so it, low. Yeah. Well, it's like, yeah, why would they read through all of this and do all this work when they can just do it in five seconds and find something that's, worthwhile and um will complete their assignment you know and like i know that later on as they get more complex and as their topics get more specific that they're going to need these tools to be able to find exactly what they're looking for um, but for these kind of very low level entry point research assignments i you know that i don't show them scholar because i'm afraid that once they see it they will completely shut down to everything else <laughs> Well, but they've already seen it, I bet, right? So are they just tuning you out from the very beginning because they know that they're just going to go back to their dorm rooms and use Scholar? I don't know. I try and force them to use it as much as they can before they leave my site. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I do that too. <laughs> we will do this now for 15 minutes while I'm hovering. <laughs> I yeah, have... and then I make them get articles and maybe that like starts them, you know, so that the next time they do their assignment, they will be like, ah, this is what I did last time, and they'll just automatically go there. Well, so, no, here's the thing, though, and, I, and maybe this is different from your experience, but in my experience, these students are generally, at least enough of them in the classroom are generally frustrated with having a lot of results and no clear way of deciding which things out of that result list are the best thing for their product. So, mm -hmm. You know, how do I know if this particular article on Google Scholar, just because it appears on Google Scholar, does not make it a peer-reviewed resource, for example? Um, it doesn't even make it necessarily a published resource, even though that's the hope. Um, so I think that my students are often struggling with a way to make sense of the information overload. And so when we start the class and talk about how every time you're talking about these other um, scholars works, you're entering this conversation and your job is to enter the conversation and get a, a sense of what's out there so that you can contribute inte intelligently. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, they really take to heart that contribute intelligently thing. We even do this sort of two-second pantomime where we're having a conversation and I jump in and say, I had cake last night and everybody looks at me like, yeah, that's random. <laughs> <laughs> and, and nobody wants to be that random person in a conversation, right? 
So that's, <laughs> that's part of the way that I set it up as being, this is more than just fulfilling the steps of the assignment. This is learning how to be part of a conversation. That's fair. I don't know. And then there are the days when I just talk about that because it interests me more. Right? <laughs> no, I'm just, maybe I'm just not giving my students enough credit. Like, yeah, I usually do that after they've done a few assignments, you know, and they haven't been finding worthwhile research. Then I say, okay, guys, there's a better way to do this, you know, well, but maybe. It, the, yeah. The timing yeah. is a lot of it. They have to already have a sense that they don't know everything, which is kind of hard. Yeah. I have had uh, a couple of students actually this semester or uh, within the last couple of semesters. I've I feel like more students are asking me about Scholar, and I don't know if it's just because I'm I'm unconsciously leading them to more questions or whatever. But um, you know, I talk about here's here's why we use these databases because we we pay all this money for them so that we can get access to all this stuff, and more and more often they'll say, well, what about Google Scholar? That's free. We're not paying for that. Doesn't that have scholarly stuff in it? And I, I'll tell them, yeah, Google Scholar is a great tool. Um, and I'll, I'll say a couple of things that, that we have problems with with Google Scholar. For one, we don't know exactly what's in it. And so it's kind of a trial and error process of discovering what journals are in there, what topics it works better for than others. Um, it's great for library science research, by the way. I've found lots of, of LIS articles using it. Um, but it seems like it's, it's stronger in some disciplines than in others. And it seems to work pretty well for some communication topics, which is what I'm, I'm doing lately. So that's, but that's one of them, which is, you know, just we don't really know what's in there because we can't click and get a list of all the journals that they index and what years we get full text in and so on. And I guess that's really the other thing is, is Google Scholar doesn't really contain any full text. It's just kind of dependent on what's out there on the open web um, for what it what it can pull back as far as, as full text goes. And so it's kind of hit or miss that way. And I talk to them about, you know, it, you can click through and maybe it'll ask you to pay for an article and maybe it won't and so on. So I guess that's sort of, I, I, I feel like I'm kind of coming sideways at, at Iris's approach, which is use it for some stuff but not other stuff. And here's why and here's why not to use it and things like that. But I haven't really, I had not ever really thought it through to that extent. Um, On our certain... campus, that last point about how there's not full text necessarily there doesn't work quite so well because we have our link resolver tied in there. Mm -hmm. And so everybody's on campus. It's a residential campus. Mm -hmm. And so they always have their beautiful little find it button everywhere. <laughs> it works. Um, yeah, it works that way on, yeah. on campus. But we've got so many students who are doing their research from home because we're, yeah. we're more mm -hmm. residential than we used to be. But a lot of people doing research from off campus as well. So that's, right. that's a well, big so mistake. Here's another thing that may not work so well for your very beginning students who will get something, anything, and be okay with it. But when they start rising above the very beginning searches, they are actually, at this point, they're seeing their professors use Google Scholar all the time. A couple of years ago was the tipping point for us where we got more, more questions during new faculty orientation about using Google Scholar than we got about using library databases, which was a really fascinating shift. And so I know that they're seeing this model during office hours, but the thing is, they get frustrated because their professors can 
get Google Scholar to cough up perfect articles nearly every time, and they get, you know, some good articles but nothing perfect. And this is what brings me back to that whole um, idea that terms really are the undergraduate's greatest barrier to good searching. I was just going to ask, is it just a question of, of the vocabulary that the professors have yeah, when they don't? Yeah, it absolutely is, because the professors have a sense of the terms of the field, they have a sense of the authors of the field, and this amount of context is just absolutely invaluable. Search is just term matching. If you haven't got the term, you're, you're out in the cold. And so I, I wrote this post called Investments in the Term Economy mm -hmm. um, about how I think that this is probably the fundamental problem for undergraduate research is that they do not have access to these key terms that will be unique enough that they'll show up in the articles that they want and not so unique that they'll only show up in a fringe, you know, things like that. And so it was when I realized that that I tried to come up with this way to talk to particularly those students who were trying to, I mean, these are still 100 level students, but they're trying to do more complex topics and are finding that my professor can find it in you know two keywords and why can't I find anything? And, and that's where going back and forth between messy searches and better searches and then better searches off of those searches really evolved is from talking with those students. What's interesting about that to me when you talk about the term economy, especially when you talk about Google Scholar versus you had used America History and Life as your example. And it's been probably seriously about five years since I've been in America History and Life. But from what I remember, I remember that it really, I remember its strong point being once you find the subject term, the, the thesaurus, the, the term mm -hmm. that they are using as a controlled vocabulary, you're gold. I mean, that's mm -hmm. it. And that's so different than Google Scholar. I mean, it's, and I think it's, it's, um, so it's just an interesting idea to me that where you go in and you're kind of throwing keywords into Google Scholar and then you're throwing those into America History Life and kind of showing how that, that database contains the articles as well, but you're communicating with that database differently. Right, and um, you don't have to do as much work on your end to come up with all of the possible synonyms because right. that's been done right, right, for right. you. Right. I like uh, um, going from... Oh, I like going from Google Scholar to PubMed just because their mesh terms are so comprehensive. Oh, it's I like, really, mesh. would you have thought of the physiology of, you know, whatever? Yep. <laughs> I can't think of something off the top of my head, but it's so complex and can give you so much that Google Scholar as, can't. As the librarian for literature and languages, I live in the MLA International Bibliography and mm -hmm. It, living there makes me lust for mesh like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> because the MLA International Bibliography applies things kind of haphazard. You have a better sense than if you didn't have any descriptors at all, but really only a little bit better. <laughs> well, what's kind of interesting about that process, and I've been talking a lot in the last couple of semesters, I feel like I've really been pushing the, the find the subject headings, find the subject headings. Um, and I well, anyway, but uh, it, it seems like you're saying the professors have the vocabulary and the students don't. So often the professors don't realize that there is that difference. And I feel like we sort oh, of see absolutely. both ends of the spectrum because we're kind of sitting in the middle. And the professors don't realize, I mean, this is an old question, the professors don't know what the students don't know because they're so oh. comfortable with the research process. Mm -hmm. Um, but but sort of trying to get the students to that point, a lot of it is 
is kind of educating the professors about what the students don't know and um, uh, the, the disconnect between the way the, the long-time teaching faculty thinks and the way the first-year undergrad think can be just really interesting to watch those connections kind of happen and watch the light bulbs go on and off in between. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've actually found that it's not the long-time teaching faculty. They've sort of often learned that what they didn't know that they didn't know, but it's the people who are right out of grad school that I just they do not understand that this is hard. <laughs> that they've been immersed in that life for the last, you yes. know, seven, ten right. years. Like, yeah, that's all they know that is their life I, right now. <laughs> Jason, I think that that's a really, really important point. And I know that last year when we were just getting ready to have a brand new first year seminar at Carleton, we had some chances then with these faculty to talk about what it is that first year students need to know. And among them, we did this I worked with a couple of faculty and said, all right, so you're looking at this result list, why did you pick that one? And make them actually talk through the evaluative functions that they went through. It can be really difficult at first, but then all of a sudden they go, oh yeah, (laughs) there's no way that my students will know all of that. I love that idea. That's great. I would love to do something like that for for a faculty orientation. It's interesting because I've been asked to like take a topic and go through it as a librarian, you know, how would I dissect it? And then mm-hmm. as a kind of model, and then now you. Um, but I never thought to have the professor do it. Oh, man. It's really fascinating when they do, because oftentimes they have even, I mean, of course they have even more sophisticated evaluative functions than I do. Mm-hmm. And just to hear them talk about it, and if you can get them to talk about it during the class, yeah. that's even better. If I can get the faculty member to actually participate in the the function of doing research with the students during class, then everything goes so much more smoothly. You know, that would be such an easy activity to get the the professor in on is just sort of have involve them in the you know the point in the, the lecture and the demo that we always do where we're you know uh, here's I'm going to type in these search terms and get these results I mean you could just call on the professor and say you know how would you a doctor so and so how would you choose from this list of results what do you want to see your students do I mean they wouldn't have to, you know you could just sort of spring that on them <laughs> yeah, they don't have to prepare that. Actually, a radical version of that, so taking that to the nth degree, is this class that I do every year with our um, chairman of the linguistics department, where he's got this intro to linguistics class, and they have a research paper due at the end, um, and he wants me to teach them citation searching in the web of science. And I, the first time, I looked at him and thought, of all the things that your intro to linguistics students need right now, citation searching in the That's web of it. science is not it. Looking up journal abbreviations <laughs> is not it. <laughs> well, the key there is completely skip the journal entry and just go with the last name and the year. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. so I, I decided, you know, it's been a couple of years. I haven't been able to work with him. I'll do whatever he wants this first time. We'll right. ha- do the subversive handout thing. And then, you know, things will get better later. And, you know, what it ended up being the perfect class and I'm trying to replicate it in many other places because what he did was he started doing this great lecture about how 
um, Japanese writing, the kanji and the kana, are processed via two different neural pathways in the brain. And he was explaining how kanji and kana came up and how one of them is a character language and the other one is a, a um, it goes on symbols, I mean syllables. And then he said, and I found this one paper that talks about doing one of the first functional MRI studies of how these two pathways operate in the brain. And so then I put that paper into the citation search um, and showed how to find who had cited this paper recently because it's about six years old now. And then he did this great thing where he started pulling out from the result list, and I didn't realize he was going to do this, but he, now we do it all the time. It's Now it's much more scripted. But he started pulling out interesting articles from the result list and talking about how this built on the knowledge of how he's understanding kanji and kana and neural pathways. Even now, in real time, this thing was just published last month, and look what it tells us. And the way that it connected the, the function of doing research with the act of being a linguist was so powerful that it sparked all these kids' imaginations, and all of a sudden, they started churning out vastly better research papers than they had ever churned out before, simply yeah. because their imaginations had been sparked about what it is that you could do if you went beyond Google Scholar, <laughs> you know? So there are about three things that I thought of while you were telling that story. One, I want to just say that's that's an awesome illustration of the the research as conversation idea that mm -hmm. you've been talking about and that's something that I really want to get to more in my classes I've been sort of trying to trying to bring that into my classes and it's it's I feel like it's been a challenge for me to do for these these very basic research methods classes that I've been teaching a lot of but I really like that as a good concrete illustration of the the conversation. Um, you also mentioned two things that I wanted to hit that you've written about before um, before we finish up for the night. One is um, you talked about, uh, you've got a blog post about exploding the, uh, what, what do you call it Iris, exploding the topic, uh, going in the four different directions. Oh yeah, um, so that you take one article that's good, usually, and you can even start with an assigned reading, which really quells a lot of fears in class mm -hmm. um, because the finding that one good thing to start from is always the hardest thing. But once you found one good thing, you can move backwards in time by using its work cited. You can move forwards in time by doing the citation search and seeing who has cited it recently. And then you can move from side to side by looking up that article in the in one of the disciplinary databases and using the same search terms um, that show up in the descriptors and stuff to see what other articles have been published using those same terms. So those are your forward and backwards, and then you can kind of go sideways and explain what the sideways idea is. No, the, the search terms idea is sideways. Oh, that's sideways, that's okay. time independent. Then, the forwards yeah. is citation searching, and the backwards is mining its bibliography. I can't believe I've, I've never heard of this, but um, it's so brilliant, because <laughs> I've done citation searching, I've done, you know, topic searching. I never thought to, like, put it as like a compass map that's uh it's such a cool little like here's a cute little name for it and bam all this yeah. <laughs> Get a whole well and these are things that. that if you show to even very entry-level students it might kick them out of that i just needed two articles thing if they realize that they can enter into something that's a lot more interesting 
Mm-hmm. And I like it because it's like putting themselves on a map, you know, instead of yeah. kind of like I am wandering through this literature haphazardly and I'm not really sure what, you know, where I'm going. It's, you know, I'm, I'm well, oriented. Well, and if everything yeah. is concretely tied to that one actually useful thing, then they don't feel as stranded in the middle of a sea of information. And I right. think at least that's how I feel. <laughs> where, they, where people think that it's it's a linear process, that research is a linear process. And I don't know. I don't, Wait, who made that up? <laughs> They try to make it this cute little linear process. First, you go to the encyclopedia, then you, whatever. It's not like that. (laughs) It's never like that. But I've been talking about the the forward and backward idea some with with, uh, this journalism history class that I've talked about many times on the podcast because they're they're finding primary sources and that's been really challenging for journalism students to find historical primary sources. So I've been talking about, you know, going to good secondary sources and and mining the bibliography and, and, you know, going backwards from there. But Mm -hmm. that's really a much more vivid way to put it, though. showing them the different you know the different paths you can take if you can find one article you can go in these different directions from it i'm all for concepts that i can draw in two lines on a chalkboard (laughs) that's great that's great or or you can draw in microsoft paint and put into a a powerpoint slide you know (laughs) right (laughs) powerpoint even has arrows built in Oh, I know. Better yet. I, you know what? I use one of my best instructional technology tips that I'll share with you, with you right now. PowerPoint is great for annotating screenshots because it's got all the circles and the arrows and everything built in. Oh, yeah. And you just export JPEG. So there you go. There's your mm-hmm. instructional technology. Unless you're using Jing to begin with, in which case it's right, built right into the screen capture technology. If you're using uh-huh. Jing, that works too. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so before we run out of time, you used the phrase subversive handout and tell us it all did. about your subversive handouts, please. Well, it it was born out of frustration, but then I realized that it was useful for more than just the frustrating circumstances. So it was it, it was something that I used to deal with the the requests that you get sometimes to please just show them JSTOR or or the opposite, please show them everything and you know that you do not have time to show them everything. And so I was making a really concerted effort to keep myself to two to three learning goals per hour um, for the students. And those could be complex learning goals. So it wasn't just two to three skills, but these two to three learning goals. And I would put those at the top of the subversive handout. And then I would fill the rest of the page with useful things that I thought that the students could learn. And the, the thing is that it's geared towards the students, but the other audience is absolutely the faculty member in, in some circumstances. So now I've started using it even at points when the faculty member doesn't need to hear all this. But I was working with a couple of faculty members who didn't have very much imagination for what a librarian could do bef- besides create the one perfect search. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to show that we actually think about a lot more. I mean, information literacy includes way more than just search Um, and so what I do is for the next three quarters of the page I list out um, different skills that I think sound interesting and might spark imaginations not just of the students but also the faculty members of what I might cover so for example if I'm teaching sort of a a mid-level English lit class I might have at the top of the page 
here's what I have will have covered today, and I always put in quotation or in parentheses, hopefully, because you can never quite tell if I'll get to everything. And I'll include something like searching the MLA International Bibliography, which is what I was asked to do in the first place, um, finding the full text of articles, both online and in the library, um, and then the difference between catalogs and da databases and why that difference might matter to you. Um, and so those will be three things that we be sure to cover in the class. And, and you know, those are really kind of basic things. Sometimes they're a lot more interesting than that. Um, but then at the bottom of the page, I'll include things like um, how to find letters, diaries, images, and other primary sources, which is usually what students find more interesting. Or how can you tell if something counts as a print resource or not, even though you're getting everything electronically from our databases. Um, or how to tell the difference between the way you have to construct searches in something like JSTOR versus what we learned in class, which was MLA International Bibliographies. Or how to use Zotero to make sure that you organize your research as you're finding it so that then you don't have to go back and find stuff and then your bibliography gets created. Um, or the, the trick about using dissertations and everybody says, oh yeah, I keep running across these dissertations and I don't know how to get to them. And So things like this that I think that this either this faculty member or this set of students, ideally both, will look at and think, oh, I had no idea that there was such a thing as advanced citation mining, right? And so then if I get to the end of class, particularly for those times when the professor told me, yeah, you can have the first 15 minutes of class. And then at the end of my 15 minutes, I'll say, so were there any questions? And, you know, when I did this with these couple of problem faculty members, they were the first ones at the end of my 15 minutes to raise their hands and say, tell us about advanced citation mining. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then I could go on for another 15 minutes. So it was like this instant <laughs> in. <laughs> Iris, the thing that I love about that, I mean, I, I love this concept in general, um, but I love that you phrase them as questions instead of just saying, I can show you how to do, you know, it's like things that they may be thinking about and because it kind of naturally leads to, yeah, how, what are dissertations? How should I use them? You know, <laughs> instead of I can tell you what they should be used for. It's brilliant. And this is something that um, I could develop after I had had quite a few individual appointments with students and got a feel for what it was that they would come to me later and say, but what about dissertations, you know? <laughs> so I'm always looking for good examples of things that people have found that crop up um, that could go at the bottom half of my page. <laughs> And I have I have totally stolen this format for a couple of classes, and and I'm actually even more I guess maybe even less subversive uh, because I've I've put my second half of the page the heading things I probably won't talk about unless you ask me in brackets <laughs> so you know sort of <laughs> you know you could ask me I dare you <laughs> exactly <laughs> I'm gonna change my template now <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> But you know, just just put the hint out there. If you want to ask me about this, if you want to know about this stuff, ask me, and I'll I'll you know we'll head right down that path. But um, but it really is a great format because um, I did have one of these classes exactly like what you're describing, where it was uh, it was a new class. It was a very experienced faculty member, but it was a new class, and he was he had not taught it before, and he said, you know, I don't really know what you'll be able to do for these students. Let's talk about that, and it was great because we we sort of planned out what what we were going to talk about. But he gave me like half an hour and, you know, uh -huh. 50 minutes is the smallest time frame that I usually really work with unless I'm giving a quick Zotero demo or something like that. And so, you know, I, uh, I just 
made one of these handouts. He said, please, he actually said, please make a handout so that they have something to, to take with them and everything. And so I did almost exactly just cribbed straight from your, your handout. And I added in some of this, you know, unless you ask me, we won't talk about this stuff. Um, but we had it, we ended up having a really good discussion and, um, it went really well. So this, this really does work and it, it really will prompt some good questions. Um, if you do it right. So, uh, yeah, great idea. It's, it's one of those things that's like so simple when you see it done just because it's, you know, well, why haven't I been doing that? So mm -hmm. <laughs> and just to bring this full circle, I think a great question would be like, when should I use Google Scholar in my research? That would be a great. True. And then you could put like, hint, it's not never. <laughs> or, <something. Right. laughs> or, you know, something similar could be, you know, what are the uses of Wikipedia, which I use every day, mm -hmm. you I, know? Absolutely. Yeah. I, was, yeah. I was just going to say Wikipedia would be a great one. So, mm -hmm. but there's, there's so much you could do with that. It's such a great idea. So, anyway. Well, we're, we're probably just about out of time here and we should probably wrap it up. I think we're, we're just about hitting the the one hour mark so um, unless there's anything quick we want to um, finish up with before we close out going once no this has been fun okay Iris it has been a great great pleasure talking with you I just and yeah. I, again we I have to reiterate to our listeners to to follow um, Pegasus librarian because it's a uh, just listen to the conversation. All the great ideas she had in this 60 minutes. <laughs> I can't <laughs> promise brilliance. No. Explode the topic. <laughs> I, I hope you're, you're, you're going to go back and mine your, your best blog posts at some point and make them chapters in a book because I would so read that book. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, uh, I agree. I, there are plans underway. I can say that much. I don't know when it'll materialize, but I do have plans with, with uh, Steve Lawson. We're going to work on that oh that's fantastic okay cool. i can't wait to read that at some point next year or the year after anyway <laughs> no yeah no pressure please okay okay all right we'll leave it at that this this has been episode 23 of adventures in library instruction this has been february 2011 and um we're coming up on spring break, and I hope that you guys are, too. If you're listening, thank you for listening. Iris, thanks again so much for being here this evening. And oh, thank you. Everybody else will catch you again in a few weeks next month. Adventures in Library Instruction is produced by Rachel Borcher, Jason Puckett, and Anna Van Skoik. It's released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License. To subscribe, go to our website at adlibinstruction.blogspot.com. Leave comments and suggestions on the blog or email us at adlibinstruction at gmail.com. Our opening theme song is Dropping Out of School by Brad Sucks, and our closing theme is Higher Education by the Napoleon Blonapartes. Both are available at magnatune.com. Contact the library schools and the American Library Association. They are able to give you valuable advice.